0: Welcome to Lips on Life. I'm excited to welcome Eric O'Neill as my next guest. Eric is a security issues expert and has an amazing story to share. Let me start by listing off some of his impressive credits. Eric is a lawyer, founder of the Georgetown Group, a premier investigative and security services firm in Washington, DC, and a national security strategist for Carbon Black, the leader in next generation endpoint security. Eric is also an accomplished motivational and public speaker, lecturing on espionage, cybersecurity, fraud, corporate diligence and defense, and more. How did he come to lecture on these topics? Here's where it gets really interesting. Eric is a former FBI investigator who conducted national security field operations against terrorists and foreign intelligence agents. He is perhaps best known for his role in investigating and capturing the most notorious spy in United States history, Robert Philip Hansen. Eric's work that led to Hansen's 2001 arrest can be seen in the feature film, Breach. I first met Eric at a conference where I watched him tell his story to a totally captivated standing room only crowd. I was so taken by Eric's story that I asked him to share it with us today. Eric, thank you for being here.
1: Jessica, it's great to be here.
0: Did you always know you wanted to be an FBI investigator?
1: <laughs> I didn't. Originally, I wanted to go to the Naval Academy. I was in high school. My father uh, was a Navy submariner. My grandfather was a gunnery officer on a destroyer. I've got uh, a two Navy doctors in my family. Uh, I come from a big Navy family. And I, I was born a Navy brat. Uh, my father had just made it back from a tour, uh, to make it, I think, the day before my birth um, and, and then was back out again a few days later. Uh, so I always planned to go to the Naval Academy. And as many uh, young students do in uh, Maryland, which is where I was living and actually live now, uh, I didn't get into the academy directly out of high school, but I got in one year deferred. And so what most uh, students do is go to a prep school where you learn to march and you learn the military order and and, and how to be an officer um, as a prep to start over as a freshman uh, or a first year at the Naval Academy. Uh, and I went to Auburn University and I had a lot of fun. And after a year at Auburn, I decided I didn't want to be in aerospace engineering. I had a serious girlfriend. Uh, ROTC wasn't for me and decided not to go to the Naval Academy. Uh, I broke my parents' heart by transferring from aerospace engineering to psychology and political science, thinking that I was going to go to law at some point, and I would pick juries because I was reading way too much John Grisham, and that is uh, what I was going to do with my life. So what happened? So I, I got through all this, graduated, uh, worked for a year as a litigation-based consultant, and found that working through spreadsheets in Excel at 21 years old was not for me and wasn't uh, wasn't something that excited me or made me happy regretted that I had never gone to the Naval Academy and decided I need to do something that serves. I wanted to serve my country. I felt that I had a duty to do that. I felt that I had let down uh, my father and my mother, and, and I wanted to do something that really meant something. And I also wanted to do something that would give me skills that I couldn't find anywhere else. So I applied.
0: Why the FBI as opposed to the CIA or the Defense Department or somewhere else?
1: I didn't just apply to the FBI. I applied to the FBI, the DEA, the NSA, the CIA, the Secret Service, and a couple other acronyms. Uh, I immediately got into the FBI, the DEA, and the Secret Service pending uh, background investigations. I was talked to the Secret Service by a friend I knew who was in the Secret Service and settled on which of the FBI or the DEA got back to me first with a Quantico date because I had quit that job that I didn't like and I really needed work.
0: When did you start at the FBI and what was your first role and what was the training process like?
1: Right. Well, I started at the FBI in 96. So it was uh, very almost right out of college. And uh, I can't talk about the training process very much. I was part of a still classified national security school. That's part of the training in the FBI. Um, the composition of classes, the number of assets that are trained, how we go about the training is still classified. So I don't want people to break into the studio right now in black suits and drag me off. So I'm going to keep quiet about that. But the training is, involves uh, counterintelligence and counterterrorism strategies. My congressional mandate was to uh, further the counterterrorism bill that Clinton had signed at that time. So, a lot of new FBI operatives and agents and other assets were being hired. Uh, but what I ended up doing right out of the gate is working spies. Um, quite a few terrorists, but in the beginning, we worked spies, and that's how you cut your teeth in the FBI. What does worked spies mean? That means that you follow people who are known or suspected foreign intelligence agents working in in my area was Washington, D.C. Uh, We were called ghosts. We're a clandestine group that used to be classified and now isn't. Um, And what we did is we would follow you from morning till night. Uh, see when you ate breakfast, dinner, lunch, where where you ate, what you ate, whether you like coffee or tea, who you meet with, what color your shoes and clothes are, everything about a target, um, to learn information that would help us further the counterintelligence goals in the United States.
0: Interesting, and I'm actually curious, when I was writing your bio, I had put in the word that you were an FBI agent, and then you corrected me and you said that you were either an, an FBI
1: investigator or a ghost. What's the difference? So my official title was investigative specialist. The FBI uh, at some point in the past determined that FBI agents who have a large array of training, quite a bit of it legal, were not equipped to follow targets. They were not good at undercover work in ghosting a target. Uh, they just had too many disciplines to learn. And so coming out of Quantico Academy, the FBI Academy, they weren't able to follow targets. So America does what America does best. We went and looked at how everybody else did it. And so we realized that the British MI5 has something called the Watchers. And this is a group of people who are not the the same level uh, in, in that they don't have the arrest powers that an agent would have. But what they did is they used a number of very secret methods to follow people, keep them in pocket, if you will, without them knowing that they're being surveilled. So, being good Americans, what the FBI did is uh, learned everything that we could from them and others around the world who did this, took it back to the U.S. and made it better, and uh, became the best in the world. Uh, And that is what the ghosts do. So the idea is that we have almost the same law enforcement uh, uh, abilities and responsibilities as agents. We pursue investigations, we follow targets. Uh, It is all in the pursuit of law enforcement and protecting the country domestically. What an investigative specialist does not do is make an arrest. Um, When that happens, you meld into the shadows, call in the agents, and they come in and make the arrest because the idea is that your face and name is not known Um, So you can continue to be a um, undercover operative or, as we like to call ourselves, ghosts.
0: At some point, you did go to law school. Is that correct? Because then that would have given you the training that you needed to be able to become
1: an agent. You're right. So I hit a glass ceiling. Um, There is a point uh, in pretty much every industry, if you think about it, where you need a higher education to advance. And I'd hit that point about three years in. And so I started looking at law school. I applied to different law schools. I chose George Washington University because they had what I thought was the best night program that would allow me to stay in DC. And I continued to work at the FBI. So I would work at the FBI during the day and then I would uh, go to class at night, and when I had uh, night operations or operations that took me out of state, I would simply miss class and, and hope that the teachers were uh, willing to let me make it up or friends would record things. It wasn't easy, but the idea was to have the higher education so that I could come back as an FBI agent or uh, I could come back as a uh, FBI attorney or a DOJ attorney, or maybe a federal prosecutor.
0: So how did you transition from being a ghost to getting this role where you were responsible for spying on Robert Hansen?
1: Well, my supervisor showed up one Sunday morning unannounced at my house. And, uh, you know, this never happens. In government, and most businesses, I think, your boss doesn't come to your home on a Sunday to ask you to take a case or to ask you to work a job. And that's the way it was here. I was woken up by a phone call. Uh, I went outside, and there he was sitting in his car, and he asked me if I'd ever heard of Robert Hansen. I hadn't. Now, we had been uh, running an investigation into Robert Hansen for a little bit of time, uh, but we hadn't quite decided whether he was the spy we were after, and we needed to connect those dots.
0: What was the investigation that you were running? At that point, were you already suspecting that he was spying on the US for Russia?
1: So we knew somebody was spying. We knew for some time that somebody was spying. Indeed, we knew- And how that, did you know? Well, the intelligence community is intelligent. Uh, we, at least we like to think so. And uh, when operations fail, when covert operations that have taken a, quite a bit of time and effort to set up fall apart, and there's no reason for it, or when assets are disappearing or are compromised, that means people who are working for us overseas or being killed, uh, when things go wrong, you start looking inward. And you start looking inward to find where the errors are occurring. And when you can't find the errors, and when there's no way that these things could go wrong, you realize that you have the most critical problem that can happen to anyone, that you have a mole. And we knew we had a mole. We knew we had a mole in the intelligence community. We didn't know that it was in the FBI. And in fact, uh, the belief was that it was not in the FBI. The belief was that it was in the CIA. And so we were looking hard at the CIA. And for years, we were going after targets in the CIA. You know, there was one outstanding case, uh, a gentleman named Brian Kelly, who was in the CIA, that we were looking at for some time and ended up not being the mole. Part of the reason for that was Hansen very um, adeptly pushed intelligence so that we would look at him on purpose. So he fooled us. Um, he was that smart. So to recap, we know there's a bad guy. We don't know where. And we start looking. And then we got a little bit lucky. Uh, the A group of FBI agents had been working sources in Russia. One defected and brought over a file of information. The file of information was very circumstantial. It had letters that Robert Hansen had written to the Russians and the Soviets before then, none of which identified him, um, none of which identified that he was in the FBI. But also, uh, there was a trash bag. He used to wrap his drops. Those are his clandestine um, information swaps with the Russians, where he would leave it, in his example, under Foxtone Bridge, and the Russian intelligence officer would come pick it up later. So they'd never be in the same place in the same time. They're called dead drops. He would wrap them in plastic and duct tape. Well, the Russians had no idea who he was, so they kept all of that, even over in Moscow. When they brought it back, we were able to get a partial fingerprint off it. And there was also a tape recording where he had warned them that we were moving in on a different spy, and that was his voice. Now, it wasn't enough to arrest him. It was enough to maybe go after a conspiracy to commit espionage, which is 25 years, which wasn't gonna be good enough, because we all thought that even if we were successful in prosecuting him, He would have just been quiet for 25 years, and we would have never been able to understand what he did so we could fix it, which is very important in this case. 22 years of spying means that quite a bit that you think is going right is not going right. So what the FBI did is created a mousetrap, and what they came up with with was this idea of the information assurance section.
0: So they're creating a new department, and is this what your boss came to tell you about on that Sunday? Okay, so tell tell us the story.
1: So he he asked me if I know Robert Hansen, and I said that I had never known him and said, well, uh, we would like you to help us investigate him uh, because we suspect him of espionage. And I looked at him, and uh, and I shook my head, and I said— Why did you have to come out here on a Sunday and wake me up to tell me something you could have told me tomorrow or over the phone? You know, it's basically you're asking me to do my job. He said, I don't think you understand. We don't want you to ghost him. We want you to work with him in an office and help learn information that can help us determine if he is the spy or not and help us catch him. It's an art called elicitation. Elicitation. It's having a conversation with someone where you, the other person thinks you're just having a nice conversation, but really you're trying to draw out information from them without them knowing that you're using that tactic. And I had no idea how to do that, so this was this was completely off the rails for me. I, I was I was good if you wanted me to follow someone in using all sorts of technology and cameras and thermal imagers and random stuff, um, disguises and blending and uh, and, and fitting into situations. But this face-to-face stuff wasn't something I was trained for. So why did they choose you? I think that was part of it. Uh, he was really good. He was one of the top analysts in the FBI. He knew all of the tells that someone uses if they were trained to work undercover, uh, specifically if they were trained to deploy the art of elicitation. And I didn't have any of those tells because I was coming at it cold. Uh, The other issue the FBI had was they were putting him in charge of something we call the information assurance section. That was a buzzword back in 2000, 2001. Today, it means something very different. It means cybersecurity. So they took Robert Hansen, who was our first hacker spy, and they put him in charge of cybersecurity for the FBI. I mean, talk about an extraordinarily bold move and gave him access with the hope he would spy. And they stuck me in there because I knew how to turn a computer on.
0: What's, what's a day at the FBI like in this role?
1: Well, I get there early before him. I would have to go through this horrible door that was—we uh, worked at the information Assurance section was in a room called a SCIF, a Secure Compartmentalized Intelligence Facility, right? Right. Um, a lot of technology, covert uh, space, baffles on the air vents, you know, to protect information from getting out. So you can house classified intelligence inside it. And the door was, was miserable. And part of the reason I think he wanted me to reform was so he didn't have to open the door. You had to use your security badge, which was easy. You wave it in front of the thing. Then you had a key code. Then you had a, uh, a SEAL, a Navy SEAL qualified combination lock that you had to open. And those things are so hard to open. Anyone listening to this who was in government and had to deal with one is now nodding their head and groaning a little. Um, It usually took three or four tries. And, uh, And then for God knows what reason, there was actually a key that you stuck in a lock. Like if anyone's gotten through all that, they can't pick a lock. So after opening all that, I would get in the room, turn on my computer and think about how we were going to actually do the job of cybersecurity for the FBI because we had to present to everyone else in the FBI that this was real. Um, how embarrassing if they shut us down because we weren't doing anything. Um, that meant a lot of scheduling, meetings with people in other agencies, meeting with people internally at the FBI, uh, figuring out how we were going to secure networks, brainstorming, whiteboarding, and Hanson and I did all that. That's got to be really stressful. I actually remember at a time talking to my, uh, my GP, my doctor, and, uh, and, and about stress. And he said, well, your, your stress levels are really through the roof. Can you cut back? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, can you sleep more? I said, no, I'm only getting about three or four hours of sleep. He said, well, can you sleep more? I said, no, I, I've got too much I have to do after I'm done with law school. He said, okay. Um, well, can you cut something from your schedule? I said, what? I mean, I can't cut FBI and I can't cut uh, law school and I can't cut any of that. And he said, well, how about drinking less coffee? I said, no, I can't do that because I got to keep sharp and I got to be sharp throughout the night. I don't finish law school until nine ten 10 at night. And then he just shrugged his shoulder, he said, well, the good news is that you're in your 20s, so you'll probably survive this. (laughs) But I wouldn't do it for very long.
0: You're certainly the primary person involved with this
1: investigation. Who are your teammates? This wasn't me and Hanson. This was a team and I was was given direction, I was given uh, operations to run, I was told to do things, I was told to try things, I was said, you know, for example, make him angry and see how he acts. Uh, Because there were a team of agents and analysts who were actually running this case. Um, I was uh, the uh, undercover operative of the case, uh, working directly with Hanson, but there was a a support network behind me. It started out very small, but as we started um, gaining success in the case, learning that he probably was the spy and then learning that, oh my goodness, he is the spy. And then deciding that we need to start pursuing the case more aggressively, more people were added. But in these sort of very complex, high level national security investigations, the objective is to keep the number of people who know very small. It's called compartmentalizing information. The more people who know a secret, the more chance you have that the secret will get out. The other problem was this was one of our own and we didn't know if he had help. So everyone we trusted was potentially someone who could be helping him. And now we have an insider working the investigation.
0: Were you reporting back to the support staff on a daily basis? How were you checking in?
1: So when you have an undercover asset in the field, y- you only have one point of contact. That way, that is, if the asset is compromised, they can't tear apart the entire apparatus behind them. So uh, Kate, there is a real Kate, and you know her name was changed for the movie uh, because at the time she was still a, uh, a functional FBI agent was that point of access. So I would get all of my direction from her. And she became uh, a a confidant, a big sister, a support network, everything during that investigation, and also the only person I could speak to about what was going on in my head. So in a way, she became my psychologist. Uh, But she also kept me on the straight and narrow and engaged in the case, uh, which is what a typical handler would do when you have someone working undercover. Uh, so we would meet generally on the way to law school. She would drive me to law school after uh, it was done in headquarters, and we debrief. And sometimes she would wait for me after law school and drive me back to headquarters so we could do a search of the office or something like that. Um, so it, it, it wasn't entirely easy, but at least you do have that support network. For the longest time, I didn't know any other person who was working on the case other than um, one other person.
0: What kind of clues did you discover as you were working with him?
1: Well, part of my goal was to get him to talk. He didn't like to talk very much. So the more I could get him to talk, the better chance I had of learning information that would help us. And often I had no idea whether the information I was learning was useful or not because I wasn't privy to many of the things that he could discuss. Part of my role was to be a recorder and remember everything and write it down and send in logs, and then analysts would look at it and determine whether he knew information that he should have never known. I realized he wanted to be a mentor. I put myself in the role of a mentee. I played it that way, and he started boasting when I started challenging him. The more he told us about cases that he should never have had access to, the more confident we felt that this was the guy we were after. I was also in law school. His oldest son was in law school. So that was something we could talk about. I'm also Catholic. And Catholicism and religion was extraordinarily important to him. And did he talk much?
0: What was his personality like?
1: In the beginning, he didn't say a word. Uh, I think that uh, the first couple days, there were very few exchanges we had. He spent a lot of time in his office. Uh, He let me know that I had to be there before him and couldn't leave until he left, Uh, that I was to call him boss or sir and never Bob or Mr. Hansen. uh, and a number of other things. Uh, but slowly, I think that if you stick two people in a room for long enough, they'll, there will be a point where they will be bored enough to start talking. There was a, a period where our relationship had grown to where he really started to trust me. And we all felt, we all meaning myself and the, uh, the team that, that I was working for um, of agents, felt that he was starting to recruit me. That it was possible that that he wanted to, to leave some legacy, and so our conversations would go like this. He was very upset that uh, although Juliana and I had been married for less than a year, uh, she wasn't pregnant. And how could that be? Uh, you know, without getting into specifics, which is kind of creepy to discussion to have with your boss. Um, I said, look, you, you know, we live in this tiny little Eastern Market you know, a Capitol Hill apartment that doesn't even have heat that works in the winter. And I think there's asbestos in the radiator anyway. And, uh, you know, single pane windows that don't, don't really even shut well. And you walk in sideways to get there. Where are we going to fit a kid? Plus, we can't afford one. Uh, you know, I'm in law school racking up debt and my wife is in school racking up debt. And, you know, it's just a bad idea to have a kid right now. Irresponsible. And he got very upset with that. And he said that that's not what God wants for you. And the purpose of marriage is children. And uh, like a whole week of that and taking me to church every day. And uh, you know, and then finally he got to the point where he started saying, God will help you find a way. There are ways to make this work. And we, we would get more deep into that. Did your wife know about what was happening while you were doing this investigation? No, my wife didn't have the clue. She thought that I had been promoted to a desk job at Um, headquarters that was going to allow me to go to law school. So she got the exact same lie that Hanson got, uh, and I sold it to her as well. Um, How do you do that? It's something I had to learn. I speak to groups, uh, mostly in police groups who do undercover work, about the serious psychological toll it can take on you. Um, You have to compartmentalize yourself. You have to hide those parts of yourself from yourself. Uh, that are the real you and you have to portray a role. I tell myself I'm putting on a mask and what happens is when you go home, the mask comes off and all the ugly things that you've hidden from your target tend to come out and, and unfortunately near the people who love you. So it can be very distressing, damaging, uh, uncomfortable, and destructive, especially for a marriage when you work undercover. And it has a very high rate of divorce.
0: Was there a seminal piece of information that you uncovered at some point along the way that was a turning point in this case? And was your aha moment?
1: Yeah. Without going into too many specifics, he knew information about a major case in the past where a spy had gotten away. It was the Felix Block investigation. We had moved in on this guy named Felix Black, who had spied on the United States for some time in Paris, and at the last minute, he disappeared. He was supposed to come out of his uh, hotel room with um, some information, and he never did, to, to make an exchange. He went out the back and just got away, and we had nothing on him. He had received a phone call in his hotel room telling him to run, and they believe that it was Robert Hansen. Hansen was bragging about that case and using it as an example of counterintelligence gone wrong, how the FBI screwed up. Uh, But he knew elements about the case that I had never known in training and and he should have never known, but only people who had specific on-site contemporaneous knowledge of the case would know. And that really made us feel like, yeah, this guy was probably the one who called him. But then uh, we got the Palm Pilot. So tell us about that. So in criminology, criminals have uh, routines that they use to protect themselves. So if you're, if you're in an investigation, you know, and it can be FBI or police or CSI or private eye, it doesn't matter. When you're following a target, you look for tells. You look for routines or clues. Ways that they behave that give you hints as to where you should look for information. <clears throat> and Hansen had a big one. He had a lot of strange quirks. He loved to click his pen. He drove me crazy with that pen. Uh, he loved to jingle his keys in his pocket. He had a lot of nervous energy. He paced. But he had one routine that was weird. And he had a Palm Pilot, which is the old cool thing before you know the smartphone. And he would pull this old device uh, out all the time and talk about how if you were an executive and you didn't have one of these, you were worthless in those words. And every executive has one, and you need it in order to schedule your life and organize your life. And it's the greatest device ever made. And he kept it in his left back pocket, which is ridiculous because if you, you think of how slim your phone is, and that's fine in your back pocket, but these palms are maybe three times the thickness, and you're walking around with that in your back pocket. It's like the worst Dagwood wallet you could have. Um... And when he sat down, of course, you couldn't sit down on it or that would hurt you. So he would pull it out of his pocket, but he would always sit down at his desk and he would always automatically grab the thing, reach down and stick it in his bag and then zip it up, which is weird. I mean, normally you would take, we do it at cafes and restaurants nowadays and out there are phones. You take it, you put it on the table and you hope that you don't leave it at the bar, right? Or that a friend is nice enough to say, hey, you forgot your phone. You don't automatically put it in your bag every time, but he did every single time. And zipped it up. and as he stood up, he'd reach down, unzip, and retrieve the device, put it right back in his pocket. So I started lobbying to take it away from him. and the the team of agents decided that, yes, we were going to we were going to go with that operation, and we all sat down to figure out a way to do it. And so we used the psychology that we had learned about Robert Hansen and all of these interactions. He hated authority, not disliked authority hated anyone he perceived as being ahead of him in authority. In fact, he thought he would be a better um, FBI director than the director. Um, He did not like to be challenged, and he did not like to be surprised. So we thought, let's do all three and see if we can break that routine for the first time, and we need to do it in a way that's going to get him away from the device long enough for us to have a team copy it. And that's what we did. They read a a person who was above him in the chain of command into the case. So we had to add someone to the case. And his job was to come in unannounced in the middle of a meeting we were have and challenge Hansen to go down to the basement range and shoot. Now, Hansen was also a gun nut. He was was a crack shot, had a lot of guns. Um, So to be challenged was stroking his ego as well. So we had everything. We had ego. We had dislike for authority. We had um, shocking him unannounced. We had everything uh, that broke that routine for the first time. And he left with the guy begrudgingly and angrily and red-faced, but he did not reach down and grab his Palm Pilot. So I did. So once I knew he was downstairs at the rifle range in pocket, I grabbed the thing and a data card, unzipped all the pockets in the bag and went through them all while I was at it, ran down three flights of steps, and we had a tech team that had just been waiting for a while. They were surprised. I handed them the devices, um, and they made me wait outside. Uh, and it was the devices were both encrypted, so it took them time to copy it one to one. And it was a uh, a bunch of I can remember it was a bunch of guys in there. Um, I was inside fidgeting, um, and my nervous energy was driving them nuts as I watched the copying that literally the bar escalating up toward 100% and they threw me out of the room and said when we're done we'll give you the devices and I'm looking at my watching and nervous and as soon as I get out of the room I get a page on my Skytel two-way alphanumeric pager which was the other really cool device back then saying out of pocket coming to you. So now he you flipping out? <laughs> I am. I, I, was, I, I was pretty nervous. What I learned later, he shot off a few rounds, holstered his weapon, and left. Just unannounced, decided he was done with shooting and was going back. Of course, because he was probably thinking, I've left this thing. And good reason. I knew that it took about nine minutes to get from where you shoot up to where we worked, which was on the ninth floor. It was kind of a circuitous route. It wasn't easy to get to. So I thought I had time, but I was really counting down the time in my head and, and knocking on the door and saying, hurry up. Um, Kate comes out with the devices, you know, my, the agent who's my handler, hands me both of them, tells me run. And I did. I ran up the stairs. I got into the room. I got to his bag. Uh, I had plenty of time. It wasn't like Jack Bauer in 24 where, you know, it's two seconds before the bomb goes off, he cuts the wire. I had maybe like two minutes I looked at the bag and I realized, oh, well, I have two devices and four pockets and no clue which they pulled them out of, right? You know, training might've helped a little there. So I didn't know what to do. And I just kneeled down in front of the bag and froze. And as I'm trying to replay in my mind somehow, figuring it out, like thinking I can use some sort of reverse psychology or self-hypnotizer, craziest things go through your mind in in the, the high stress moments. He's coming through the door, which fortunately I had closed. So he has to go through all that nonsense to get the door open. So I just dropped them. I knew that they were in different pockets. I dropped them in two pockets, hoped I got it right, zipped up all four, and ran back to my desk and put on my best poker face. And he comes into the room. You know, the, uh, where we worked, it sort of had a, a pit that would have, you know, supposedly had more people. I made air quotes there. Um, but for this investigation, it was only going to be us two. And then he had his own private office. So he comes through the pit area where my desk was, glares at me, and then goes into his office and slams the door. And I sat there and thought, do I run or do I stay? What's the smart thing to do? Um, And I went through the calculus in my mind. If I run and I was right, I've just blown the case because he'll be paranoid. You know, where is Eric? Something's wrong, and and he might have run, and we would have never caught him. If I stay and I was wrong, here's a chance he shoots me because the game is over. If what was on there was what we hope was on there, but I also would have had an opportunity to talk my way out of it. Maybe who knows? And had you divided something in your mind at that point? What was your? Did you have a story? I
0: I didn't. I just (laughs) thought
1: maybe I'll come up with something. But I also felt. A multi-million dollar investigation, all these people relying on me. A number of people had said, I'm the weak point in the investigation. If anyone's gonna screw it up, it's gonna be him. He's not trained for this. This isn't something that he should be doing. This is a bad idea. Others had you know put themselves on the line for me that Garrett can do it. And so I felt I owed it to the case and to everyone else and myself to sit there and and deal with the mess I'd created and not run from it. And I did. And he came out and he looked at me and he said, have you been in my office? He's leaning over my desk and he's very upset. And I said, yes, I was in there and I put a memo in your inbox, which I had. And he looked at me again and then he said, I never want you in my office again. And he left for the day. And I had no idea if he'd come back the next. He did. And within weeks of that date, uh, we met him uh, after he walked out of Foxtone Park in Vienna, Virginia, with two SWAT teams who arrested him for espionage. He had walked into that uh, park that morning and left his last drop that he would leave for the Russians. We knew where he was going to be and when he was going to do it by decrypting the Palm Pilot.
0: I'm speechless, <laughs> <laughs> it's an unbelievable story. Were you there,
1: were you at the park? I was not at the park when we did it. There were a couple of arrest scenarios. I would have been at the other one Then this was the one where I was not going to be there. And why'd they choose this one? I think that the idea, I don't know, but I believe that this was a career killer, um, especially for the director who I, I think felt at that time, Director Free felt that he was probably going to have to resign after this because um, we had thought it was the CIA, not the FBI. And this was somebody right you know, under his purview. Did he resign? He did. He did. And I think that um, uh, we, you know, the FBI wanted to make sure that We did everything we could to really uh, catch the guy and be able to prosecute him. Uh, They didn't want to give him an opportunity to maybe get away. They didn't want to um, give an opportunity for anything to go wrong. And I think that there there is something righteous about taking that moment of excitement and exuberance and I've just pulled one over on the FBI right away from the person right at that moment and not wait till days later. So he went to trial and— He pled guilty. He pled guilty. He did. There, he, we had him dead to rights. There was no real way to get out of this one. We never actually went to trial. He was offered a plea agreement. And he was facing uh, the death penalty for multiple counts. So for, ha- uh, for uh, getting people killed, assets that were working for us by giving up information that got them killed, for providing nuclear secrets to a foreign power— um, for the uh, counterintelligence information he had given um, as a traitor, so there were many ways that they could have given him the death penalty. Um, but I think what really did it for him was the offer was to allow his family to keep his pension and his house and their cars, which they could have all taken away, and not make them go through a trial, a long trial. So he pled guilty. What was his sentence? life in prison without possibility for parole. And part of the sentencing was that he would agree to an undetermined number of years of debriefing from a number of commissions. He began the process of talking to people in the intelligence community to tell them everything he'd done, everything he'd compromised, every scrap of information he could give about the Russian operations and uh, allow us to fix the problems that he had created, and four commissions if at the end of the, uh, that process, and it was open-ended, uh, the judge would reconvene for sentencing. If uh, more commissions than not said he was honest, he would go away for life. If the opposite were true, then he would uh, receive the death penalty. Um, two said he was honest. Two said that he was not. And where was the tiebreaker? The judge decided on leniency and gave him life without parole. At some point, he decided, I don't want to talk anymore. And so he got taken away from the um, better place he was uh, incarcerated and sent to Florence, Colorado, which is Supermax Penitentiary, which is, I think, it's been described as one of the top 10 worst places to be in the world, prisons to be in in the world.
0: So from the time that he was captured, actually, really from the time that you took the Palm Pilot, to to now, have you seen him? Have you interacted? Haven't. You haven't.
1: I haven't ever seen him, no. At one point, I, I, originally I didn't want to make a movie. I wanted to write a book. And um, my problem was by the time I got permission from the FBI to tell my story, which was a long-involved process of its own, uh, there were already seven books in publication. So I was way late to the game. And uh, I had uh, a lot of access to some very good agents here in New York City. Um, and, and many of them said, oh, we already have a writer writing a book. Would you write a chapter with him? And I said, no, this is my story. And this is the story that um, none of your writers have because it was, it was kept confidential. It was left out of any public record uh, or discussion because I was still going to work undercover for the FBI. Um, so I asked permission to meet him. And I thought, well, I, I'll have a really cool epilogue if you, if you will, um, because I thought that maybe he would answer the question that he has, for me, that he has refused to answer for anyone else, why he did it. And that's what I would ask him. Um, uh, plus, it's a it, it would be a great thing to put at the end of the book, you know, the meeting with him. Uh, the FBI declined, said that we are still in a very delicate interrogation of him. And we're afraid that if he learns, because he, he didn't know at that point, I was still in the FBI, that... Um, you did what you did, then uh, he will clam up and and not talk to us anymore. Because ironically, he uh, is very hurt by betrayal. (laughs) I know, you're throwing up your hands. Go (laughs) figure.
0: Go figure. So do you feel closure around the case, having never gotten to speak to him afterwards?
1: I think that I've created a situation for myself where I've never really been allowed to feel closure of the case because I keep speaking about it. <laughs> I made a movie about it. It's very much part of my life. It's become a central thread of my life. Um, I've never been able to step away from it, so I don't think I've been able to go through the rationalization and the uh, the uh, departure and separation process from the FBI because I, I still accidentally use the... Um, speaking about the FBI and saying we, instead of they, um, even though I haven't been in the FBI for a a large number of years, um, I, I would like to talk to him, but I don't want to subject myself to any games he might play. Um, you know, I could see a scenario where I fly all the way out to Colorado. I get permission to talk to him. He gives permission to talk to me. He puts me on the list. Um, remember the FBI has to say yes, they might say no, um, and, uh, and then, you know, the day I'm supposed to go meet him, he says, no, nah, I don't want to talk to you and strings me along for a while. I, I could see that happening. And, you know, that's time and expense I don't want to. Maybe when I do write that book. Did you know at the time what a big case you were on? I, I think that I had some inkling, uh, I think. But at the time when I was in the case, all I could think about was surviving the case, achieving the case, winning. Um, there was a point where we did learn that this was the guy we were after. Here was the spy we were after. And in my mind, the case shifted from, you know, the guy's not easy to work with. He's a really difficult boss. He's got all these problems. He can be a little bit of a jerk, but that doesn't mean he's a spy. We have to give him the benefit of the doubt. To, I want to catch him, and I want to do everything I can to catch him. When you're in that moment, it's hard to think about the bigger picture because you're so in the weeds trying to survive. So
0: they've— They've caught Hansen. Your job's
1: essentially done. What you Do you continue on at the FBI? I stayed in the FBI for a while. I went back to the streets. I went back undercover. Uh, but I never felt the same about what I was doing. I, I think I had tasted the biggest case I was ever going to work. I was never going to do something like this again. In fact, well, a senior agent pulled me aside and said, how do you feel now that you've worked the best case you're ever going to work in your entire career? It's never getting better than this. Um, I also felt very burned out. I needed to repair my relationship with my wife. That had suffered. Our first year of marriage was our worst. I wanted to see what I could do with my law degree. And I felt like I had, I had served. I had done what I had planned to do. I, I had I had checked that box in, in what I needed for my own self-worth and I wanted to see what was next and family was going to be part of that. So I concentrated on law. The movie came later. Um, it was after I left the FBI and it was not something I ever planned to do. Uh, I wanted to write a book and I had gone around and tried that and that didn't quite work. And it wasn't until my brother, Dave, David O'Neill, who was living here in New York, was visiting uh, and he was just in that same crappy apartment Easter market. Juliana was out. We were sitting there, and I can remember um, we were both just sipping uh, some cocktails and just catching up because we hadn't seen each other in a while. And I had only told some family members but not many about this. It was still a classified case. So I couldn't say what I was doing and, or that this was a big spy and, or that I really worked it but or any of the details, but I could say that, you know, I was part of that case that's on the news all over the place. And let me tell you about how lousy this guy was as a boss. Nothing about the spying, nothing about what he did, but just this guy was a horrible boss. He was really creepy and hard to work for. And he looked at me and he said, do you know how great a movie that would be? I was like, what do you mean? He was like, I could just see it. You're working for this terrible boss and it turns out he's the worst spy in American history. And I said, that's silly. No one's going to make a movie about this. And he said, well, can we just talk to some people? Well, I started the process of, um, you know, getting that permission I needed. Um, and once I got the permission, he started talking to some producer friends he knows. We ended up settling with Outlaw Entertainment because Bobby Newmeyer was just such an incredibly awesome guy. I felt like I could trust Bobby. I could trust him with my story because when Hollywood makes a movie, they buy the rights to your story. No matter how involved you are, they can do whatever they want to you. And (laughs) we've got a problem in the country in that we just believe this stuff. So I knew that whatever they put out there, however they portrayed me, no matter what I said, and it's rung true, no matter what I try to correct, everyone will believe that the movie version is the truth. Um, it, what parts of it aren't the truth? So the, the, the main... So it's easier to say what is the truth. So oh. the central core of the movie, the investigation, Hanson and I in the room, Hanson and I going to church, The uh, how we caught him with the Palm Pilot, how I learned about the case, how it ended, all of that is true. In fact, the arrest is a perfect reenactment of how the arrest went down. The two agents that arrested him, who put the cuffs on him, were there directing the set. Um, I uh, the The most not true or untrue parts of the movie are the shooting scene in the woods, which never happened. That was required by the studio who said, you can't have a bad guy, good guy movie, an FBI movie where the bad guy doesn't shoot at the good guy. So Billy and I spent a lot of time working that in somehow. Um, And uh, the elevator scene at the end, because I never saw Hanson. Now, there's a lot of dressing around that I, I didn't spend all that time with his family. I was supposed to. I was invited over for dinner. Um, and Juliana and I would have gone except for he'd made that last drop way sooner than we thought and he was uh, arrested. Um, they never showed up at our apartment. I don't think you could have fit them in our apartment um, at the time. so um, Bonnie and and, uh, and Mr. Hansen or Hansen don't actually show up in my apartment for a birthday. But you need those things um, because otherwise it's less of a thriller movie and it's more of a documentary and um, you had to you had to make it a movie that people would want to go buy and see,
0: and they have. It's been so successful. So, were you doing that full time?
1: No, I was. Uh, I took a sabbatical from the law firm I was working at while I was at DLA Piper, um, which is a, a massive now multinational law firm. And uh, they gave me time off. They they knew—I think they they were cool enough to say, when is anyone going to get this opportunity in their life? So they so they gave me a leave of absence, and I, I went on the whole media tour. Um, I was able to be in Toronto for most of the shooting and watch it unfold. I worked with the actors to help them with their roles. You know, Chris Cooper needed me to say he was never going to meet Hanson, so how does Hanson talk, and how does he walk, and what is he like, and how would he act in this situation? We did a lot of— talking about that Ryan and with Ryan it was a lot easier. We just went out to the bars in Toronto and hung out and swapped stories and realized we actually have a lot in common. you know we both had grandfathers in the military and um, were you involved in helping to cast them? Uh, so I didn't get to choose but I got to talk to all of the actors that Billy Ray liked the best. Everyone that was cast did such a good job. When the movie was done
0: and your media tour was done, did you go back to the law firm or where do we get to the Georgetown Group, right? <laughs> you're, the, you're the founder of this firm called the Georgetown Group. Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about your work with um, Carbon Black.
1: So I went, I, I did. I went back to the firm and I worked with the firm for a number of years. Um, I was with the, I was on the five-year plan for a while. I worked for the law firm for five years. I'd worked for the FBI for five years Uh and I got to the point, it was around 2008, that I just decided, uh, this is not, I, I don't want to do this anymore. I I didn't want to purely practice law. I think I wanted to get back to some of what I did with the FBI, and I had met a uh, partner. We thought we should found a company that does investigative services in a different way, that looks at it from a very strong diligence standpoint in helping our clients' trust, but that puts a partner on every case, and so we work in physical security and cybersecurity in investigations. And I thought I, I wanted to also be an entrepreneur, and then Carbon Black came later. And I have followed that the uh, company Carbon Black since its inception. I, I knew the uh, the original founder, and he came out of the NSA, and what he built was worlds beyond everyone else. Um, and I love the company, and. I spoke for them, I did a keynote for them, and they they said, your keynote was excellent, would you like to continue doing this for us? And uh, I was flattered and honored, and and so I've, I've joined them as one of their spokesmen, because I really think the future is in cybersecurity. If we wanna protect the country, if we wanna protect ourselves, the consumers, the individuals, if we wanna protect from everything from identity theft to leakage of intelligence from industry and government, It's got to be in cybersecurity.
0: What do you think that individuals can do to protect themselves? Or is it such a large question um, that that it's not an easy answer?
1: It's a horribly large question, and there is isn't an easy answer, but I'll give you an easy answer. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to boil it down really quick.
0: Okay, please do.
1: Pay attention. Two words, pay attention, right? Uh, The major way that people get away with identity theft is because someone isn't bothering to pay attention. If you don't pull your credit reports every year and actually go through them, And there's three credit agencies, and you get a free one every year. You can pull three across the year. Go through and make sure you don't see things, credit cards open or debt that's been created or a mortgage on a home that you don't own, on your credit report that you don't recognize. If it's there and you don't recognize, you need to take action. So pay attention. The second step is to be careful. These are two-word answers, right? Everyone can do it. Be careful, particularly in how you use social media and what you place on social media. Assume that anything you place on on social media, everyone will have. And if they have it, can they use it to exploit you? Can they use it to learn a password? Can they use it to learn information about you that will generate what's called a phishing email, a targeted email that seems to come from your brother or your boyfriend or your mother? Uh, that uses information they mine from social media to say, hey, click these pictures from the uh, ball game we were just at. The, we were just at the Yankee game you know, yesterday, and it's from your brother and said, take the pictures. This is what I took. And you click it, and it installs malware. Be careful. Social media will give people that. So be careful.
0: So if cybersecurity is the biggest issue right now, you're currently working in that area, do you see this as something you'll be doing for the rest of your life, are there other dreams that you have? Do you think you're going to go back to the government at some point? What are your thoughts?
1: I don't think I'll go back to the government, although you know you can't you can't roll that out. Uh, I'm not that old yet. I got a lot a lot of time ahead of me. Uh, dreams I have. I, I think cybersecurity is where I feel the most comfortable. It is a a perfect marriage of my investigative background, my legal acumen, and my interest in computers. And computerization. I think that I've reached a point in my life where I can actually speak as an authority in cybersecurity and not look like a fool. I've been around enough. Um, bucket list, things that I definitely want to do is I still want to write that book. I will mind that time and I, I will write the book. But now when I write the the Hanson book, if you will, or the the breach investigation book, whatever you want to call it, it won't just be the case. It will be a lot like what the discussion we've had today. It'll be how I got in the case, what the case means to cybersecurity and security today and into the future, and a little bit about how the movie got made and, and that whole process. It'll be more of a memoir. I can't
0: wait to read it. <laughs> um, as we close out, do you have any advice for anyone looking to get into these areas, whether it's government, whether it's cybersecurity, other national intelligence?
1: Advice? Sure. So if you want to get into the area of cybersecurity, you really have to have a background in computers. You have to understand them. It can be systems administration. It can be computer engineering. It can be in uh, understanding processes. Um, systems engineering is another important way because understanding how systems are built and how they flow together and how to protect parts of the system is a big part of cybersecurity, even if you aren't a hands-on keyboard-type person. And that can be done on a whiteboard. Um it's also a great skill if you want to get into the government, because there is a enormous push, mostly related to the very recent OPM hack, which is the biggest cybersecurity embarrassment to the United States government history, uh, to require computerization and cybersecurity in every vendor to the government, but also throughout the government. And I think there'll be quite a few positions that are going to be staffed. So, I think if you want to get in cybersecurity, now is the time. Uh, That is when those jobs are opening up. In a time when there aren't many jobs, I think that's where we're going to see quite a few.
0: Thank you. My final question, did the Hansen case change you? And if yes, how did the experience affect you?
1: I think it very much changed me. Um, I would not be here today, but for the Hansen case, probably. Uh, It taught me a certain way of approaching life. Um, there is there is a science of being a uh, passive versus active. Um, it applies to lots of things, but in life, we can be passive and and just do the right thing and uh, and and move through life, and just do enough, if you will, to get by. We can also be active, which means that you're always pushing forward. You're also always thinking of the next thing around the corner. You're pursuing your life as opposed to just living it. And I learned during the Hansen investigation that if I was going to win, if I was going to catch him, it wasn't going to be by just working the investigation. In other words, being safe, making sure he felt comfortable, making sure he felt this was real, sort of looking for things. But I had to actively attack the investigation and pursue it. And I've employed that in everything I've done in my life since you know, the other side of it is you do something extraordinary, whatever it is, and it opens every door imaginable. And, you know, part of being active in your life is walking through those doors. And that's what I've been doing for years.
0: Thank you for sharing your advice and your experiences and your story, which really, really was and is amazing. It is such a pleasure to speak with you and to have this time with you today. This is Jessica Lips with Lips on Life. Thank you for listening.